Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. America's policy and economic debate in the last several decades has been characterized by free market libertarian on the one hand and progressive uh, big government uh, liberals on the other. Uh, But the current pandemic and the crisis we're in, I think, has starkly illustrated the limitations of both approaches. Uh, Our free market trade policy with China has left us dangerously dependent on it for critical medicines and and, uh, and medical supplies. Uh, For example, America can no longer even manufacture aspirin in its own country. Uh, But also looking at the lockdown we're experiencing from state, federal, local governments, we're also seeing what a blunt instrument government policy can be and is not detecting the nuances of how different this virus has affected different states and different places in different times. Uh, Stepping into this breach with a very interesting solution is my good friend uh, Oren Cass, who's launching the American Compass Project uh, in the next week. Uh, Oren's been a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He uh, was a policy director, domestic policy director for Mitt Romney during the 2012 campaign and has worked as a consultant at Bain and Company uh, for, for over a decade. Also joining me is Wells King, uh, who is research director of American Compass and Prior to joining American Compass, Wells worked also worked as a management consultant at McKinsey, and he's been a policy advisor to uh, Utah Senator Mike Lee. Oren, uh, let's talk about why you launched uh, American Compass. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Bill. It's great to see you again, even yeah. um, via computer. And, I need a haircut. Uh, I need a haircut. It's been four months. <laughs> <laughs> I've been locked down. I'll take this opportunity to credit my wife for giving me an extraordinary haircut in the backyard. It looks um, great. We were both surprised it worked, but uh, allows me to, to reappear in, in semi-public, I guess. And uh, yeah, we're very excited to be launching American Compass, I think. As you described in in your introduction, our, our political debates have been characterized by this dispute between, on the one hand, free market uh, libertarian perspectives and, and on the other, the kind of progressive big government view. Uh, and, and I think lost in all of that has been a more traditionally conservative conception of uh, what we want the economy to deliver and, and what economic policy and, uh, and therefore the government can actually do to help. And so we want to really uh, bring that back to the discussion and hopefully uh, shape the debate a little bit so that not only do people hear that, but but hopefully some folks on both the left of center uh, and the right of center, uh, I think especially within the right of center, realize there there are other alternatives out there that that might be more attractive and and that might be able to build toward a consensus. Well, you're launching with three interesting essays. Uh, Wells, you wrote one of them. Wells, you gave us a bit of history about. Uh, uh, the government role in the economy back at the America's founding. You want to give us a quick, uh, quick summary of that? Sure, and thank you for 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 inviting me on. Um, the sort of history of I think American political and economic thinking is a lot more nuanced than conservatives tend to think about. Um, we're very familiar, of course, 
uh, with the founding philosophy of the Declaration, uh, belief in constitutional powers. But I don't think we give enough thought to the way that those constitutional powers were exercised within the American economy. One of the things that I was really struck by in the research uh, that I did and that I tried to lay out in the essay is the fact that many of America's greatest statesmen did see a very positive role for the government within the national economy. In particular, uh, what, what, what Hamilton and Henry Clay developed, what ultimately became known as the American system, which is essentially a three-pronged policy approach of a national bank that directed investment um, uh, throughout the economy, uh, a massive uh, plan for infrastructure spending, as well as protective tariffs uh, for, 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 for the manufacturing sector. And the goal of this was to so, develop- sounds like, sounds, like, sounds like our current president. <laughs> you know, in many ways, I do think there are a lot of parallels. And I think a lot of folks have been able to highlight this. His, his instincts are in many ways those of a Hamilton or a Clay. Oh boy. Um, what you, interestingly, you both worked as management consultants uh, at Bain and McKinsey, two of the premier management consulting firms. What did, the, what did that bring to your, uh, your current project? Well, I, I suspect it's not a, a coincidence, maybe, that, that we got that perspective early on in our careers. Uh, you know, people talk about going to Washington and, and seeing how the sausage is made in Congress. Uh, the, the reality is that we make just as much sausage in the private sector. And uh, while I think, obviously, firms deliver a huge amount of value to the economy, and, and certainly I'm, I'm a big fan of, of private sector firms as, as the leading actors in our economy, um, if, if you get some experience as a consultant, you also get a lot of, of perspective on how these decisions get made, what influences them, uh, and, and you realize that that while markets do a lot of good, there are also a lot of things that markets that markets aren't going to take into account and aren't going to give us. And and so I think that probably informs uh, some of our thinking on on both where we we really value the market and, and want to make sure that it it is in the lead, but also where we realize there there need to be uh, a role for other forces. Well, in one of your essays, uh, you mentioned the limitations. Hayek, we're all you know I I'm a I guess if I had to pick a stripe, I'd be a libertarian. Hayek wrote The Fatal Conceit and also wrote extensively about the role of prices and uh, allocating resources and the price mechanism uh, was, uh, was, was the sacrosanct way to, uh, to do things. But you point out, and I think it's interesting, and I, this is my experience as an investor, price tells you one thing, but you need a lot of context to know about what that price is uh, is telling you. I mean, is your supply chain backed up? Is the of the raw material been moved into another uh, another use or something like that? So it's more than just just the market that pe market actors uh, market participants need. Thoughts? Yeah, I I think that's you know something that Julius Krein talks about in his essay, and and the thing that really jumped out to me when I when I first read it was his distinction between. Uh, price as a signal for rationing and, and price as a signal for investing. Uh, and, and prices are a terrific way to, to ration goods, to help us understand there's only so much available uh, and find out who's willing to pay the most and, and then in turn send a signal back if people are paying a lot uh, that, that there may be an opportunity to make more. And, and so, so price is terrific for that. But, but as you mentioned in, in your experience as an investor, uh, price as a signal for investment is 
is helpful, but it's certainly not the whole story. There's a lot else you want to need to you want to know either as as a individual investor, as a firm, or as a nation uh, about what investments need to get made and what investments should get made. And so, while everything Hayek talks about about the power of the price system, about the existence of a knowledge problem, um, those are all important points. Those are all things to to keep in mind, but they don't answer all the questions. And and so I think that. Uh, gets back to this idea that that there's more than that that we have to look at. Well, in launching this project, you've enlisted, I think, about 15, 16 uh, public policy experts in what you're calling the commons. And how how do you plan to shape this debate between the libertarians on the one hand and the uh, the people opposing, uh, I suppose, the progressive uh, solutions uh, on the other? Well, you know, the, the commons is is one manifestation of, of what I think our kind of driving uh, impetus for this whole project is, which is uh, to recognize that that there's a tremendous amount of momentum uh, in public policy circles, uh, especially on the right of center, uh, among people who want to think and talk about and, and explore these questions in more depth. Uh, the reality, though, is that there's very little momentum at the institutional level. If you if you look across all of the major right of center institutions, yeah. uh, I would say there's very little interest in talking about this, even though within each of the institutions, there are people who want to. And so American Compass generally is very focused on finding those people, bringing them together uh, and and creating some institutional support for for their work. And then the commons is one particularly public way to do that and, and create a space where a lot of the prominent folks thinking and writing about this uh, can do so uh, and interact with each other. And, and so the rest of the world can see who's, who's working on it and what they're talking about. Who are some of the people you have in the commons? Oh, gosh, I, I think, as you said, we're, we're up to close to 20, uh, and uh, as well as those of us in, directly involved with American Compass. And... It, it really runs runs the gamut from uh, from from folks such as yourself on on the more libertarian side uh, to folks who are uh, kind of pushing very aggressively on on thinking about economic policy on the right of center, like John Latiri, who uh, leads the Economic Innovation Group, uh, to even folks on the left of center who have very heterodox views, like Matt Stoller. Uh, and then other folks who, who I would describe as kind of classically conservative and, and bring some really important social views to the economic policy debate, from Rusty Reno at First Things to Patrick Deneen at uh, Notre Dame, uh, and, and, and lots more. But, but that, that gives you a, a sense of the, the breadth. Well, yeah, and you have uh, Rob Atkinson, who's a founder of Information Technology I've had on the show, who's terrific describing the role big business plays and innovation and creating good jobs. And he's a real paradigm breaker when it comes to talking about um, the significance and usefulness of big business. Uh, David Azerod over at Hillsdale College is an extremely interesting thinker. Um, who else? We have, uh, yeah, you mentioned Matt Stoller. And uh, then you've got this guy, uh, Walton, who does a radio or does a pod podcast, who's going to weigh in. On, on libertarian side of things, and J.D. Vance, who gets at the uh, the human cost that uh, some of the uh, decisions where we're working for market efficiency and a low cost may have had on the family and uh, civil society in the, in the, in the country. Uh, Wells, in your essay, you talk about the difference, the, the debate right at the beginning between, uh, was it Jefferson and Hamilton? 
and yes. the agrarian tradition or on the one hand and the, the New York bank tradition on the other. You want to amplify how this, this argument's been going on for 250 years? Yeah, sure. So in many ways, I do think we kind of still see these fault lines in our political and policy debates today. I think one of the clearest places you see this, in fact, is antitrust, um, where I think sort of the Hamiltonian wing sees uh, the real the, the real idea, the, the real distinct advantages of scale. They see that big is, in fact, a, an, a, a, a real advantage and big um, that trying to scale our organizations and our manufacturing sector in, in particular uh, achieves some distinct advantages for the nation as a whole. Whereas more of the Jeffersonian wing, I do think that they see a particular value in um, uh, in, the, in the advantages of a smaller type of economy, right? The advantages of a smaller um, uh, producers um, and that rather uh, than trying to concentrate power, um, that they would prefer to diffuse the power and see um, competition between these producers. And so in many ways, I think it's a question not only about um, sort of scale, but also a concentration of power. And the Hamiltonians see distinct advantages to that, and the Jeffersonians still do not. Well, that sounds like an argument we're still having today. Uh, or in the, 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 you know, there have been some pushback by my libertarian friends about this notion of having government interact with business to create an might, might, be, might be called an industrial policy. And there are a couple things that spring to mind. One, uh, the fact we have a big government now does not, does not necessarily mean that the government's failed to implement business, interesting uh, business uh, strategies for America. The size of government's really based on our entitlement programs and a lot of other things, and it's not been aimed at any sort of planning or advancing other any interests uh, uh, that I think you're talking about. Do you want to you want to comment on that about the, uh, the the argument against the sheer size of government mitigates against the fact that uh, government could be useful? Yeah, I think that's an important distinction between government in terms of the the roles it plays and just government in terms of how much money it spends. Uh, one thing I emphasize often is that if if you look across a lot of the policy proposals that uh, certainly I'm interested in and and that covers industrial policy, but also education and, and environmental regulation and organized labor and so forth, you know, the, the, the net effect isn't necessarily more spending. Uh, if, if anything, I think we probably are, are spending too much uh, in, in a lot of areas. But what, what we're really interested in is asking about what influence does government have on the actual conditions that our economy operates in. Uh, these, these are all areas where we we have to make some choice. Government is inevitable, whether you're talking about our education system or our system of organized labor or the interaction that the military has uh, or the kinds of rules we're going to have on, on things like environmental policy. Uh, and, and so the question is, can, can we use those in a way that is going to uh, produce the kinds of economic outcomes that we want? Can we, can we create conditions so that all those market actors pursuing profit uh, pursue profit in a way that that also benefits society widely. And so that's definitely a, a different role for government policy than than we typically think about today. Uh, but but as well said, it's 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 not new. It's actually much more the way we used to think about it. and And I think it's a way that would would probably uh, generate a lot more benefits for the nation. 
Well, Lincoln was in favor of what you all might call industrial policy, yet the federal government, even, I guess, before the Civil War was, what, 3% of GDP, as we could measure it then. Now we're at 30% of GDP. I mean, it's a massively different scale. Uh, And one of the things I wish you'd talk about is my experience and others' experience in business is that a lot of people in government agencies do not like business, and there's a hostility to the private sector uh, in and among people, actors in, in government. How do you how do you get people working on, on the same team, rowing the boat the same direction? Yeah, that's, that's certainly a challenge. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, as we think about policy changes we may, might make, there's, there's almost a meta policy question of, of what kinds of people do we have in government and, and what kinds of expertise do they have? You know, we've, we've spent the last 40 or 50 years essentially telling government to, to get out of the economy uh, that, that it has no business thinking about those questions at all. And in, instead, it should just focus on, on transfer payments and, and welfare programs. And so unsurprisingly, that's, that's now what, what the government excels at and, and what its staff focuses on. Uh, so, so I think there's, there's certainly a question of, of who is in government and what they're doing. Uh, and, and then I think there's a question of what, what, goals we, what goals we point them toward. You know, we, we've really had a policy in recent decades that says just generate growth. And if that creates a lot of winners and losers, we'll take from some and give to others. And if we instead say uh, we actually would care about what kind of growth we get and we would like to be supporting an economy that, that spreads prosperity widely, uh, then, then that's that's a different role for what what policymakers might be thinking about. And and if I were a business leader, uh, I I'd certainly be very interested in in talking with with the policymakers about that. Because at the end of the day, you know, for for business leaders, they they ultimately have to focus on the bottom line. Uh, but but they're just responding to the the conditions they're placed in. And so a lot of times you talk to them, they'll say, Yeah, sure. If 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 the conditions were different, we we would behave differently. One of the things that's notable about Trump's managing this uh, health crisis, this, this, this virus, is that the way he brings out the CEOs of the companies, and they're impressive, and they come out and talk about what they're doing, and they're, they're working together. Do you, is this an example of what you'd see of, of an industrial policy, but not crisis-oriented, but something aimed at coordinating with businesses long-term? Well, I think it's hard to draw too many conclusions from the middle of, of the crisis. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I try to emphasize is, you know, I, I don't think we should draw lessons that because something is happening in this once in a once in a lifetime situation, that's how it should always be. Uh, but I, I do think we can draw lessons from things it's calling our attention to that that have been problems all along and, and will continue to be problems. And, and so as an example, the, you know, this, this question of supply chains is a very important one. Uh, it, it, we, we are noticing it in a very acute way because there were suddenly a, a set of things that we really wanted and didn't have. But that's just a specific example of, of a very broad issue, which is that s- supply chains don't just instantly move from place to place. They, they represent years and decades of entrenched experience and relationships and if, if you say that you don't care about those things, you don't care where the supply chains are, uh, then someone else who cares is going to get them. And then you're going to turn around and realize, uh, actually, you're not so happy about that. 
And, and so one of the things that, that has driven me nuts in these debates generally is that for decades, everybody said, oh, it doesn't matter who makes what where, and you know, it's irrational to, to put particular value on manufacturing. And then when you turn around and ask, well, why can't we make X here? Or why can't we make Y here? The response is, ha, well, don't be silly because all the supply chains are entrenched in Asia. And, and it just makes you want to kind of slam your forehead on the table. That, that's why these things mattered in the first place. And, and hopefully long after this crisis is over, one of the things that will be closer to the top of mind is, is that those things matter. And that, that what markets do in pursuit of efficiency is not exactly aligned with what is in the interests of the national economy over well, the long run. Well, Wells, one of the things you write about is that, you know, as I think about this, we're, we're in, in the United States, we pursued fairly radical free trade among the states, but we had very hefty tariffs on manufacturers outside the United States. And that's the way the American economy grew for decade after decade after decade in the 1800s and on into the 1900s. You want to comment on that? Yeah. And, you know, you know, in many ways, the federal policy historically was a free home market within the United States, um, but a fairly protected global one um, where we actually saw that our competitors were interests in Europe and particular in England where they had developing economies. But we saw it as our national interest to develop our own economy, in particular, our manufacturing sector. And so we protected our industries as they were developing, but also saw that eventually, once we'd achieved a certain amount of industrialization, um, that it would be fair and, in fact, in our interest to open up our, 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 our market and to pursue more of a reciprocal type of trade policy. And you, in fact, begin to see this at the turn of the 20th. Um, uh, when you see, um, uh, for instance, some of the longest time protectionists, say a president, um, um, a president, um, uh, I, sorry, that, 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 that some of the sort of the, the longest time uh, protectionists, um, um, they began to advocate for a, liberal, a liberalized trade approach, which they called reciprocal trade, where they found that nations in Europe, which had achieved a similar uh, degree of, of, of industrialization, uh, that we would pursue a balanced approach to, to, to trade with, with them. So yeah, the, you know, the, yeah. the free home market concept is a really interesting and important one. And uh, Senator Romney had a, an op-ed in the Washington Post recently that, that made this point vis-a-vis -vis China as well, which is that you know, if, if you open up your economy to free trade with another country that, that is not a market economy, that has, has wild distortions and, uh, and, and actively seeks to, to subvert and undermine your own economic goals, that doesn't advance the cause of the free market. The, you're, you're actively lessening the freedom of your market if, if, you, if you allow China to participate in it. And so a principle that made so much sense in the US context has always been where you have this large domestic market that has common laws and economic conditions and standards and so forth, obviously with some variation, um, then yes, of course, it makes sense to have uh, as free a market as possible within that realm. Uh, but it's a very different and more complex question to, to ask when and on what conditions do you want to combine that market with ones that are, are under completely different sovereignty. Well, in the case of China, in the case of medical supplies, 
China deliberately imposed a system where they would choose an industry, they would choose a subsector, and they would subsidize it, and subsidize it to the point where they could drive the prices down far below what American manufacturers could charge. And then, sure enough, the American manufacturers uh, either moved their operations to China or someplace like that or, and got out of business in the United States. And then uh, when they had uh, left, the, left the field, uh, China raised their prices. And that's not a free market uh, uh, a transaction in any sense, and I think we're all waking up to that now. Uh, it's, it's. Uh, they have an industrial policy where they've chosen what seventeen strategic uh, industries. I don't remember the exact number, and they're engaging in that with, uh, with all of those industries. When we come back here to the United States, Orrin, how do you how do you respond to that? What do we what do we do uh, as policymakers? Well, the point that, that Wells just made about reciprocal trade is a great place to start. Uh, you know, one of the things that China does beyond the subsidies is it it does not provide access to its market the way that it, it takes advantage of, of access to other markets. And so China, among other things, says to firms in a place like the U.S., uh, if you want to be able to sell to our billion plus consumers, uh, you have to come and do the, the production over here. And so as a starting point, the, the principle of reciprocal trade that says, yes, trade can, can be a wonderful thing, uh, but, but it has to be balanced. It, it has to have the same rules on both sides is, is I think, an incredibly important starting place uh, and, and something that, that we should be uh, pursuing much more aggressively uh, as, as we establish our trading relationships around the world. Uh, and then I, I think we need to have a, a two-part approach. One is to try to discourage the, the kinds of really bad behaviors you see in places like China. Uh, and you do some of that through trade directly, but, but you can also use other levers. For instance, you can say, uh, we're going to restrict access to our higher education system to Chinese nationals until China shows it can be a responsible member of the international community. Uh, I think that's something that would, that would focus their mind a great deal. Uh, and then secondly, domestically, there's a lot more that we can do to, to make America a more attractive place to make things. And uh, some of that's in our education system and making sure that we are investing in, uh, in, in both engineers and technicians and, and people throughout a supply chain who actually excel at making things uh, besides you know, social media ad campaigns. Uh, and some of that is in our organized labor system. We have a very dysfunctional organized labor system that looks nothing like systems in places like Nor Northern Europe or Japan that have, uh, I would say, better industrial sectors. Uh, we can do that with how we approach regulation. We can do that with how, our, uh, how we tax or, or support uh, an industry. Uh, we can do that with, with how we support and, and fund and invest in infrastructure and, and research directly. So all of those things, you know, are, are things that you've heard people talk about in the past, but but I would say are should be the focus that 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 this is what economic policy is all about is how do you uh, use public policy to, uh, to to get private actors within the economy investing in the kinds of activities that are, are going to be most important to the nation's prosperity. Well, as I, as I said at the outset, you have an ambitious project uh, that, that you're launching. Uh, some would say audacious. Uh, you know, I'm reading from your, from your launch document, and uh, it's, uh, 
and we and we've covered sort of specific things about trade, but it's a much wider agenda. Uh, establishing new college, non-college priorities for the education system. Uh, we've talked about industrial policy, creating a modern system of organized labor, uh, constraining cross-border flows of goods and people and capital, uh, regulating big tech and financial speculation, uh, and reforming, reforming the welfare state to promote work and family formation. Uh, my first question is a process question. These are all interesting ideas that you raised, where are people going to go to find where you're developing those ideas? Is, are you working through a website or, or you've got an office now in, in D.C., I see, but uh, how do we find you to, uh, to, to, to learn more about this, uh, this project? Yeah, the, the launch that, uh, that, that we're undertaking right now will, uh, will be focused on the, the website that we'll roll out, which will feature a, a bunch of stuff. It'll, it'll feature the commons that the, the blog we just talked about with a lot of contributing writers. Uh, it'll feature an, an in-focus section where we will regularly uh, put out new series uh, on issues that we think are important. So what we've been talking about today is, is that first series on on thinking broadly about economic policy, going back to the tradition of, of the American system and, and thinking in terms of that tradition, in terms of theory, and then in terms of, of, of practicing policy, uh, you know, how should economic policy look different than, than it does today? Uh, but, but we will focus on, on lots of different subjects, a lot of the ones you just mentioned and, and, and bring forward new content and, and new debates on them. Uh, and, and then we'll also have, have projects that we run. We will identify areas where we think uh, a particular research or activism could be particularly constructive and, and try to make sure that we inject that into the debate as well. So repeat again, your Facebook, your uh, website is, uh, where can we find you? Uh, it's AmericanCompass.org. AmericanCompass.org. And you, I assume you've got the Facebook uh, group already begin set up. I mean, we're gonna, we, we gotta get the word out, Warren. <laughs> no, I, 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 unfortunately, I'm, I'm not an especially proficient Facebook user, nor is, nor is anyone in, uh, in. Okay, well, Wells is younger. I suppose you're going to take on the what, the Facebook side of this, Wells. It sounds as though I may have. I think we just, I, I, we just, we just, to, yeah. we just gave you a feel great promotion right here. Yeah, I, that's right. I asked Wells to lead our TikTok initiative. Uh, so that's coming soon. Uh, but but no, on, on social media, we also, uh, uh, I think Twitter is a great way to uh, in, engage in, in some of these discussions and, and also call attention to important content. And so we are at AmeriCompass. I'm at, I, I, normally, I'd like this to last about 30 minutes, but there's, there's just one question. You've got so many interesting ideas in here, and I'd like to dig in. We can't do it all in this time. You talk about regulating big tech. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I think it can mean a, a few different things when, when we get down to nuts and bolts. I think the starting point is to recognize that, you know, technology as a force in our society and, and, and our economy has, has gone through an incredible evolution uh, over, over the past couple of decades uh, as, as the internet has, and kind of networks generally have, have come to play such a central role. Uh, and, and our approach to regulation just hasn't caught up with that. Uh, in, in part because it has happened during a period where the dogma was that regulation is bad. Uh, if, if you look back through history, when we've had major technological revolutions like this, 
we've always had an initial kind of unregulated experimental period, whether that's with you know the car or with electricity. Um, but but then we also got to the point where we said, okay, we we need some we, we need some rules for this. You know, I, I think there was a point where it was suggested that uh, that that the system of roads didn't need rules of the roads. Everyone everyone would kind of figure it out as they went along. And, and then at some point we realized actually we probably do need some rules of the road. Uh, and, and likewise with electricity, we realized these are going to be big utilities. They need to be regulated. We need to figure out uh, how to make sure electrification occurs nationwide. And so while I think there's a lot of debate to be had about how to regulate and, and what the right approach is, uh, I, I think we have to move past the idea that that there is no need for regulation or, or the best outcome would be if we leave it entirely unregulated because it is increasingly affecting society uh, and the economy in, in both positive and negative ways. There are lots of very positive ways it does. But but as we've been discussing throughout, uh, there are a lot of things the market just doesn't care about and doesn't consider. And so if we as a nation care about and want to consider those things, uh, we are going to have to, to, to impose those views uh, on a market that otherwise would, would disregard them. Well, I've, I'll, I'll be interested in weighing in as a member of the commons, because when you say this, my my first instinct, well, I want to regulate the regulators. <laughs> no, well, and, and, you know, one thing that's interesting yeah, about that is, I mean, you know, what the model of regulation looks like yeah. should be completely different. I mean, in, in those sure. kind of total changes that I was describing, there wasn't some agency out there that just needed to yeah. write some more rules. We had to rethink, well, what, what would even mean to regulate this kind of thing? And so I think we need to be creative about it. But I also don't think we, I don't think conservatives should be the ones saying, you know, we don't need speed limits. We don't need people to agree that red means stop and green means go. It'll work out if we just pave the roads and, and leave it there. Well, I think this is going to be an interesting and important project. I'm glad you're launching an American Compass or in Cass and Wells King. Thanks for thanks for being here. I, uh, you're bringing a different take to the public policy debate, and I think that maybe some useful things will come out of it. And uh, I'm wishing you success and looking forward to being part of this. And uh, I'll see you back here uh, to dig into some of these other topics. Oren, thank you. Thank you. Love to come back. Well, thank you, Bill. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks everyone for watching uh, or and listening. We're on YouTube. We're on all the major podcast channels. You can also go to our website and subscribe there, or subscribe on any of the other uh, uh, platforms. So. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we're wishing uh, Orson and Wells uh, success with American Compass. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.